Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Sleepy Hollow. I am Constable Ichabod Crane, sent from New York to investigate murder in Sleepy Hollow. How much of your superiors explained to you? Only that the three were slain in open ground, their heads severed from their bodies. Taken by the headless horseman, taken back to hell. He rode a giant black steed to look at him. Made your blood run cold. Even today, the western woods is a haunted place where brave men will not venture. We have murders in New York without benefit of ghouls and goblins. You're a long way from New York, Constable. Is everyone in this village enthralled to superstition? We have many things to talk about, even in this backward place. Excuse my manner. I'm not used to. Female company? Murder! The Osmonds killed again! The assassin is a man of flesh and blood, and I will discover him. Are you so certain of everything? After royally spanking Tim Burton for his presentation of the troublingly casual child exploitation of Miss Peregrine earlier this year, as well as decrying his pointless, bland, repetitive and inhuman Dumbo adaptation in a quick review, we decided to cover one of his oeuvre that we actually really like and one of our favourite Halloween films in general. It's not a celebrated entry in his body of work, nowhere near as beloved as his Batmen, his distinctive Beetlejuice or Edward Scissorhands, nor his Corpse Bride or even Sweeney Todd. And it's not what I think of as his very best film, which is Big Fish. This, also on a side note, gives us a chance to talk in a positive way about an engaging, amusing Johnny Depp performance. And given that we're about to release a show that we recorded some time ago, where we were less than complimentary, that being The Crumbs of Grindelwald... It's a nice way of balancing that out, I suppose. Uh, Sleepy Hollow is a movie that not many critics loved, nor audiences. It garnered 68% freshness, which is okay, and it cost $100 million, which is a lot for a gothic horror, and it made an okay $217 million, and few people get to talk about it these days. It is set precisely 200 years before the movie was released, in upstate New York in the fall of 1799, where an aspiring detective of weak constitution is sent to investigate a series of grisly and spooky murders, striking at members of a Dutch settlement. Apparently, a headless horseman is abroad. His business is taking heads, and business is good. With us to touch the bottom of this murky swamp is Dr. Lauren Grieve, who herself is becoming kind of a forensic expert of movies. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me, as always. I appreciate that I get to be on something to talk positively about for a change. Oh, yeah, we <laughs> wanted to mix it up a little. Because there's more to this than meets the eye. It has some subtext that I'm not even sure Burton realized. And while it's not a del Toro, it's probably the closest that Tim will get to that level of dark fantasy. First of all, has anyone read the original book by Washington Irving? I have. It was a very long time ago, but I did reread a synopsis of it uh, before coming on here to prepare. I did too. Uh, it was, uh, but I've also read the uh, original about a year ago, I think. 
and it was written uh, whilst uh, Washington was living in Birmingham, England, around about the same time as uh, Rip Van Winkle in 1820. Uh, and it's really short and mostly about atmosphere and sort of setting the tone and leaving you with a kind of uncertainty at the end. Some residents say this town was bewitched during the early days of the Dutch settlement, while others claim that the mysterious atmosphere was caused by an old Native American chief, the wizard of his tribe, before the country was discovered by Master Hendrik Hudson. Basically, the story is about Ichabod Crane, who is a schoolteacher, and again, I haven't reread the full story recently, so... This is just a synopsis. So Ichabod starts falling in love with Katrina, and Ichabod is very much uh, a, a... He has an interest in the supernatural. He's a very superstitious individual, and he starts falling in love with Katrina, but Katrina is already betrothed to a man named Brahm, and Brahm gives the stories of the Headless Horseman, this Hessian that lost his head to a cannonball in a battle nearby, and that uh, the Headless Horseman comes around and kills people. So late one night, Ichabod is riding somewhere, probably home. It's home after a party where Brom has been spinning these tall tales of the Headless Horseman, specifically to scare Ichabod. listless response of the place and the peculiar character of its inhabitants who are descendants from the original Dutch settlers, this sequestered glen has long been known by name of Sleepy Hollow. A drowsy, dreamy influence seems to hang over the land and to pervade the very atmosphere. The Headless Horseman chases him down, hucks a pumpkin full of fire at him, and he runs off never to be seen again. And the story is that, you know, oh, the Headless Horseman dragged him to hell. But in the end of the story, if I'm not mistaken, Brahm is specifically pretty smug about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it's intended to be that Brahm dressed up as the Headless Horseman and hucked the pumpkin to scare Ichabod away. And I think there was even a, like a postscript showing that Ichabod ended up marrying some other woman from some other town some distance away. Mm -hmm. So... Interestingly, the original story doesn't have any supernatural elements whatsoever. Yeah, it's almost like, shut up, you idiot, there's no such thing as goblins at the end. Yeah. <laughs> Disney short. Yeah, there was a 1949 is... Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, which was about an hour and eight minutes long. Yeah. And half of that was a version of uh, the of Washington Irving Sleeping Hollow that took about two thirds of itself to basically be about this is Ichabod Crane. He's got great big feet and he walks all funny. And these are the lovely girls of Sleepy Hollow. 
and this is Brombones. Ichabod used to romance the ladies. He'd be round their homes at night eating turkey. But Brombones didn't like that because he felt like the women were paying Ichabod too much attention. And Ichabod had funny nose and funny hair and he was quite tall. And Oh, there, here, here's Washington Irving, Sleepy Hollow. And then they rush out of it as fast as they possibly can. It's really atmospheric for the last ten minutes of a 33-minute uh, shortish the, film, the but point yeah. That I was going to but make it's was. very like narrated by Bing Crosby. Yeah, if but, you know what I mean. Like it's <laughs> it's consumed by Bing Crosby and the quaintness of Disney at the time. Yes, I had a Bing Crosby record when I was a kid, and it had the uh, Ichabod Crane song on. Ichabod Crane, oh, he's quite gangly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was the. Uh, uh, Take down notice if you replicate yeah, it so sorry. accurately. Uh, well, it, it was the Disney in the forties, so it had a, a bunch of uh, like singers in the background, all singing in close harmony. Here's a crane. crane. He gets all the tail. Yes, it did. But the point that I was going to make was that they all have this kind of vibe of um, when you live in a village, stroke town that's right out on the fringe of. Uh, civilised America at that point and there's scary woods on one side It's like 20 miles from New York City But that's a long way out for those days In American mileage Americans would drive further than that to get a good taco These days, back then you were dependent on whether your horse was also interested in the taco which is probably (laughs) unlikely Ichabod's horse, he sure liked tacos (laughs) Anyway I'll tell you Peg the hypervigilance that sets in when you live in that environment is my point. <laughs> the need for a community to band together and be really defensive about any kind of threat, whether perceived or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Was Ichabod a visitor and like staying at Sleepy Hollow or was he born in Sleepy Hollow? I believe he lived there. I believe yeah. he was born there. Hmm. But to me, the story, the legend of Sleepy Hollow is more saying don't believe in superstition because in the end there isn't any kind of supernatural element going on there because mm. Ichabod is a believer in the story and loses the love of his life because of those beliefs and that it turns out that they're also completely unfounded and he's taken advantage of by the the swarthy, more able-bodied man, which of course, has its own problems, but it, it's somewhat opposite what the movie gets to. Oh, yeah. And from the sounds of it, and actually, especially combined with the Disney animation, it's Scooby-Doo. It's, it's 18th century <laughs> Scooby-Doo. Now let's see who you really are, Headless and Horseman. I wouldn't have well, got away with it if it wasn't for you, dang school teacher. And they do pull that shit yes. in the film. Like, Casper uh, Van Dien, remember him? He, uh, he turns up and pranks Ichabod with a flaming pumpkin and then goes, yeah. <laughs> Twas I! Which I think they do specifically as an homage to the story because... Yeah, yeah. While this is heavily based on the story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, it ranges pretty far away from it. Oh, yeah. They add a whole, uh, like, heaps to it. The, uh, like I said, the story is incredibly slim, and really all you get in the story is one scenario that's not in the film really at all, because Ichabod is an outsider coming to investigate as opposed to just a schoolteacher going around for turkey, uh, and... 
The other being Ichabod feeling creeped out, which happens a lot in the film, but that's just one bit of Sleepy Hollow. It's like, oh, what's another thing that's really, really small that got blown up to ridiculous feature length? Hobbit? No, actually, I'll tell you what. <laughs> it's like scary stories to tell in the dark, which I saw recently, where a lot of these scary stories are less than a page long, and they turned them into sort of movie within a movie, st- like the Russian doll of stories, if you will. Yeah, and many of them are iterations of Who's Got My Hairy Toe. Yeah, which, yeah, it's American folklore. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a neat uh, co- um, relationship there. Which I, I really need to see the, the movie, because I grew up with that book. I think I still have my copy somewhere. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I'd never read it, and uh, so uh, reading that after the film, I'm like, oh, so this is that. Okay. <laughs> like they, they made a meal out of this very, very slim story, and obviously this must have played merry hell with the kids' heads, but uh, they they go all out in that film. I can, I can, it feels the fingerprinty of Del Toro. We'll, we'll be doing a show on it, and I'm going to go ahead and guess you might be on it, Lauren, if you like it. Oh, delightful. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like even if the story of that film is going to be pretty slight, the tone of it is what they really needed to go for, because that's really what the book hmm. had going for with those creepy, creepy yeah. drawings. Oh, it's got tone. So this version of Sleepy Hollow, Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow, it's, it's very much him from the get-go. You've got um, Danny Elfman on fire with this soundtrack, with this incredibly atmospheric kind of brooding, but also with full of this choral, oh, I die tragically type stuff in the background. But... um <laughs> Uh, uh, We start with all the ceiling wax that also is symbolic of blood, and it's like blood and law, you know, and and, and deeds and, uh, you know, plotting is is going on with this, you know, gorgeous old papyrus paper, which looks fantastic on Blu-ray, by the way. And this is the first time we'd seen it not on DVD in 20 years, Mm. now that I think about it. Yeah, but it it also sets the store of uh, of the narrative as being about this... Um, elaborate it's it's words and mm. it's the marks of civilization it's signatures and sealing wax and surnames and all sorts of things that you would think would be antithetical to superstition and pacts with the devil and and things of that nature mm. and this really highlights for me you wouldn't think that pacts with the devil would be about sealing wax and papyrus and well, writing your name it, in blood Okay, yeah, the, 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 you get what I mean. It's the it, these are the the, the you just literally described net. exactly no, how no, no, I would no, imagine a pack with no, the devil. No, no, but that's the whole point, yeah. isn't it? That the the idea of if you write it down, that means that the devil is trapped, that you've got mm-hmm. control over him. Okay. This whole intro, what I really really loved about it was it. it presents this wonderful tangibility everything in this film it feels like you could pick it up and hold it the sets the costumes the props everything feels so incredibly real and it's got atmosphere you could cut with a rusty sword absolutely and this whole intro bit it's all you're seeing hands moving things around but you don't get to see any people until a little bit further on and it just kind of gives you that tone of there is manipulation afoot and you kind of you're tense to begin with before we even find out that there is also murder going on Mm. So at the very beginning of the film, the man who owns Sleepy Hollow, Peter Van Garrett, played by Martin Landau in a cameo, writes a new Last Will and Testament, which is then hidden, 
rides off in his coach only to be run down by the headless horseman and beheaded in a field. So straight away you know, this isn't a coincidence. And for some reason, this has ended up like a, a repeated Halloween viewing for, for us. I mean, it starts with a lot of pumpkin-y stuff. You can spam pumpkins at Halloween sometimes. Mm. I, I've actually got an aversion to Santa Claus films where it's like the end result is and Santa Claus got to deliver presents to all the kids and we should all thank Santa for all the hard work he puts in. I still thank Santa for turning up. Like, I, I, I love the idea of Santa Claus. I hate the worship of Santa Claus. Mm. You get a power of three on the pumpkins in this. There's the head on the scarecrow. Yep. There's the pumpkins on the mantelpiece at the party, mm-hmm. just to outline the fact that it is a Halloween party. And then there's the pumpkin head full of fire that gets thrown on the bridge. Yeah, directly at Ichabod. But after that, pumpkin, like the gloves are off. Yeah. Um, but it, it does, it, because of the look of it, and because of the sort of mysterious plot and the being mostly set at night, and the uh, you know the, there's a ghost abroad and you know scary things out there in the woods it feels very like I would imagine Halloween to be because again a lot of the flavour of our Halloween comes from kind of just post-colonial American kind of you know just after witch burning time and, and, and kind of you know, spooks abroad, which obviously dates all the way back to Celtic religion the old countries and the, the various mishmash of places that it came from but this is kind of the birthing place of of the, uh, the of American Halloween. And so it feels authentic to Halloween, even though it doesn't really talk about Halloween all that much. And it's not set on Halloween, and it's it's the, not key to the plot that it is Halloween. There is kind of an irony there, though, that, the, that it comes on the heels of the witch burning. It's like, we're going to burn you and take your holiday. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of America <laughs> that's a, a. A. Christianity. Mm. <laughs> it, it's basically American Christianity dot TXT. Like, yeah. that's, that's what they do. It is. Um, as you say, it's basically just Christian Samhain after they burned all the people that knew what Samhain was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, see, let me see. We know there was pumpkins. Yeah. And people September, dressed funny for some reason. There's a lot of pumpkins reason. around. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but the, but the, the tone of the season is really something that you can feel here. You can feel the cold and the, the drip of fall and the you've got all the uh, the fallen leaves everywhere. It's, it's just, it, again, set, but it's so well blended with the natural environment it works mm. very very well it's almost too good to be a burton film like if you if you go and look at his other stuff he has very distinctive sets and he has a very distinctive look to the kind of stuff he does but so much of what tim burton tends to deal in feels fake think of charlie and the chocolate factory think mm. of uh, edward scissorhands think of batman, batman, and batman it's it, it never really feels like you're there it always feels like you're in fucking uh, like a movie set Do you know the yeah. There is one moment in this that really feels like that, and it's right at the end when Christina Ricci gets out of the carriage, that mm-hmm. black and white striped yeah. outfit. He goes all Beetlejuice there, yeah. and that's yeah. understandable, but um, he had to make a, a little confined version of, uh, of New York there. But yeah. uh, there's a very steady hand to this and a dark sense of humour, but it doesn't indulge in silliness too much at the same time. And it, it's kind of whippy as well. It doesn't have that... 
poser sensibility that a lot of, uh, of other Burtons do. Beetlejuice is very impressed with itself, <laughs> if that makes sense. I wonder if it's got something to do with the time flow. Most Burton movies feel like we are in a modern age looking back on uh, a more stylized kind of Victoriana. It's not quite steampunk. It's more like, I don't know, st- Grease paint punk. <laughs> He's kind of caught between the, the suburbs of the 1950s mm. and a sort of a twisted, gothy version of the 80s. Yeah, but this, because we go all the way back to 1799, and so, and I know, Lauren, you want to talk about this, but all of uh, Ichabod's bits and pieces and tools and, and bottles and everything are that ilk but in this particular point in time they are forward looking rather than backward looking Mm. yeah which is really important to mention comparing it back to the original story we talked about because in this version ichabod is a detective a constable he's very much a man of reason and science which is very at odds with the original character from the legend of sleepy hollow And uh, he gets sent his marching orders. This is just a little thing by uh, Christopher Lee as this impressive judge. And it's just a little gift on a plate to see you into the movie. Good work. The millennium is almost upon us. In a few months, we will be living in the 19th century. Yet our courts continue to rely on medieval devices of torture. Stand down! I stand up for sense and justice. Our jails overflow with men and women convicted on confessions worth no more than this one. Constable Crane, this is a song that we have heard from you more than once. Now, there are two courses open to me. First, I can let you cool your heels in the cells until you learn respect for the dignity of my office. I beg pardon, but why am I the only one who sees that to solve crimes, to detect the guilty... We must use our brains to recognize vital clues using up-to-date scientific techniques. Which brings me to the second course. There is a town upstate, two days' journey to the north in the Hudson Highlands. It is a place called Sleepy Hollow. Have you heard of it? I have not. An isolated farming community, mainly Dutch, Three persons have been murdered there, all within a fortnight. Each one found with the head lopped off. Lopped off? Clean as dandelion heads, apparently. You will take these experimentations of yours to Sleepy Hollow, and there you will detect the murderer. Bring him here to face our good justice. Will you do this? I shall. Remember, it is you, Ichabod Crane, who is now put to the test. If you've got dialogue like that to be delivered, you want someone with a voice and a bearing like Christopher Lee to deliver it. Great choice. Also, two days north of New York suggests 80 miles, not 20 miles. 80 miles is still... A short distance to go for a taco, I'm told. The logo before the movie starts, Mandalay Entertainment, combined with Danny Elfman's score, is one of the most alarming, 
visceral ways to begin a movie. Like you're just sort of watching a jungle in black and white, and then suddenly an orange tiger comes leaping out of the screen at you, not in an aggressive way, but in a kind of okay, there was a tiger there, and that leaves you going, oh, oh. but there's this brooding music in the background underneath, and it just it maintains throughout the whole thing. So Mandalay has always been my favourite logo for a film ever, possibly because of this one moment. What's your favourite movie production company logo, folks? Well, it feels very William Blakey as well, which then mm. puts you in the right frame of mind with all of the uh, innocence and experience themes going on. And they do show that Ichabod coming from New York, it's not like this haven of uh, uh, truth and justice and intellect. People who are clearly not a danger to society are being horribly punished there. Yeah, and, and nobody really wants to look too hard for accurate answers. If you find them in the yeah. river, the cause of death is drowning. So Ichabod is already railing against the people that he is surrounded by. Uh, but the costumes are by Colleen Atwood. Does that name ring a bell, Lauren? It did, but I couldn't place it and I didn't look it up. Uh. This, She's quite keen on dressing Johnny Depp. He's her Ken. Uh, she did The Crimes of Grindelwald. Oh, that's right. We did talk about that. Yeah. That was one of the things because I actually commented on his outfit in that movie. Yeah, which looks very much kind of like an adapted version of Ichabod in this. So, like, she, Colleen knew what he'd look good in. And then yeah. she was like, well, we can't really do anything about this horrible albino head, but uh, the rest <laughs> of it's fine. Well, um, Johnny Depp, I barely even recognized him in this because he's so young. Yep. Like, I. I, I recognize him looking a lot different and since you mentioned all of the outfits my goodness some of them Mm. are really fun basically anything that uh christina ritchie wears i would 100 percent want in my closet yeah she's like the sole arbiter of glamour in this place apart from miranda richardson fantastic british actress known for her ability to be incredibly brittle and subtle in things like empire of the sun and ridiculously over-the-top and camp and pantomime-ish in things like Blackadder. I'm completely bored with explorers, and if you haven't brought me any presents, I'm going to have you executed! Mum? <laughs> I only let Raleigh off because he blubbed on his way to the block. <laughs> presents, please! Ah, uh, yes, Mum. Um, yes. Well, there was one thing, Mum. Good. A most extraordinary gift from the island paradise we visited. Hurry up! <laughs> What is it? A stick. (laughs) Is it a stick, Lord Blackadder? Uh, Yes, ma'am, but it is a very special stick, because when you throw it away, it comes back. (laughs) Well, that's no good, is it? Because when I throw things away, I don't want them to come back. What else have you brought? Um... Yes, well, there was very little time, what with picking the weevils out of biscuits and... uh... Anyway, she gets introduced as Baltus Van Tassel's wife early on, and then we don't see her for ages. Uh, And, uh, yeah, uh, Colleen Atwood is, much like Danny Elfman, on fire in this movie. And it's in a way that you can't really tell if you're just watching it on DVD, because the costumes all kind of munge into this sort of charcoalish, blacky, brownish, grey. But if you are looking at it in HD and then the uh, every little detail stands out, you can see that there is gradations in the blacks. There's these uh, expressive and indi- individualistic elements to the costumes. Uh, there's these muted greens. I noticed that Dutch Van Tassel 
has one costume that's got tassels on the boots and then a whole bunch of tassels brocading his the front of his uh, uh, jacket. Uh, but there's also like off reds and dirty golds and there there are colours in there, but they're all creeping towards black. Mm. So it's kind of like it's being consumed by this sort of the, the, there's a the bit in the original musical version of Oliver Twist where Fagin drops all of his jewels into this sort of sump mm. of the the river Thames and this sort of black mud just sort of oozes and like sucks them in and that's always stuck in my head as this visual metaphor of this all consuming black tar that that's going to take things that are bright and shiny out of the world. The tone of that and the the essence of what that tends to mean to me, people dressed up in finery that they then go out to the stables in and get covered in mud and, mm. and uh, you know, living in that environment where finery is not really called for, but you're wearing it because you want everybody to know mm. how puffed up and important you are. Now, it may be because of where I grew up, um, which is... A, North Yorkshire in England and there is very much a sense of the history of the gentleman farmer Mm. that you are important because you own a lot of land and you grow a lot of food and you have a lot of animals but you're still covered in shit for most of the day (laughs) it feels like Christina Ricci could step out of this into Crimson Peak and do quite well Like, you know, wearing yeah. these dresses and she's like, oh, finally, I managed to get like get out of the shadows and like there's still shadows all around, but I can wear something that's more brightly colored and, and like st- step away from this sort of sucking sense of, 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 of the uh, colors bleeding away. Colleen Atwood does have a, a major skill at making gaunt, dark clothing, specifically for Tim Burton. She also did Sweeney Todd. She also did Alice in Wonderland, which we are going to have to reappraise at some point. Oh, man, I watched that movie at a friend's behest mm-hmm. not terribly long ago, and I'm I'm kind of a sucker for anything that's Alice in Wonderland, mm-hmm. and I ended up not hating it, which <laughs> was surprising, I think, from all of the hubbub. The sequel's garbage, but the first one's uh, got a little bit of something going on. Johnny Depp is insufferable in it, yep. but... But a lot of the other stuff that's going on, I, I was kind of here for. The White Queen in particular, I remember liking. Mm. That's Anne, Anne Hathaway, Hathaway yeah. Yeah. Depp was currently transitioning from doing offbeat comedy dramas and indie roles into doing blockbusters. He was still several years off that point where he just seemed to stop trying and was also in everything. I feel like he was even affecting an accent of a sort in this. He didn't sound like him, his normal self. I feel like in most of his other films, except for... I guess maybe the um, Pirates of the Caribbean films. He just sounds like Johnny Depp. Yeah. We are dealing with a madman. He's got kind of a, a clipped uh, quality to uh, to him. He's got, he's got a good idea of how to play Ichabod, but also where, like he, he does a little bit of the wacky, you know, I'm talking about a horseman, headless, fump, and faints. And like, yes. there's, a, there's a little bit of what would eventually be Jack Sparrow in there. A little bit, a little bit. But he holds I- it in. I love how he he actually plays it really well, that he's extremely out of his depth mm. and just barely holding it together. Mm. And, but we yeah. admire him for being intrepid all the same, rather than yeah. just turning up and being cowardly all the time. Mm. I think the element of, the, of his performance that I really appreciated the most was that he's this intellectual, investigative, curious scientist type 
really keen on the idea of new methods and and finding things out and I want facts and I want to do what's necessary to find out the facts but then as soon as he's actually presented with anything that really does involve guts and blood and and dead bodies there's this kind of there's this look that passes over his face that's like oh "Oh god God. keep the smelling salts to hand Thinking about it, while he's heavily influenced by Sherlock, specifically Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes, there's quite a bit of Ichabod Crane in James Penrose. We set out from Weirwood at 8am. I have called that place home for over a decade, and every step away felt to me like the movements of a struggling butterfly emerging from his atrophied chrysalis. What gathered in horror at the back of my throat and required repression on a minute-to-minute basis was the realisation that against all expectations upon this particular butterfly's reintroduction to the world, it would seem that he is still very much a caterpillar. Michael Gambon, uh, playing uh, Baltus Van Tassel, I noticed when at the, at the beginning, when he delivers the story of the Hessian warrior uh, who uh, went on to be the Headless Horseman, he's ju- I wouldn't say he's just doing Dumbledore so much as the quality that he brings to this character has a compelling, amiable nature that he brought to the table as Dumbledore as well. So he's not just doing Dumbledore here, but... He can't hide that storytelling ability of his as uh, uh, Michael Gambon. The horseman was a Hessian mercenary sent to these shores by German princes to keep Americans under the yoke of England. But unlike his compatriots who came for money, the horseman came for love of carnage. When battle was joined, there you'd find him. He rode a giant black steed named Daredevil. He was infamous for riding his horse hard into battle, chopping off heads at the full gallop. He'd filed his teeth down to sharp points to add to the ferocity of his appearance. This butcher didn't finally reach his end until the winter of 79. He chopped off his head with his own sword. Even today, the western woods is a haunted place where brave men will not venture. For what was planted in the ground that day was a seed of evil. And so it has been for 20 years. But now the Hessian wakes. He's on the rampage, cutting off heads where he finds them. Are you saying... Is that what you believe? Seeing is believing. It's, he's very welcome in this, and from the sounds of it... Uh, while he's scared the whole way through, he didn't. Did he actually know about this? The whole no, plot. No. He's he's the obvious beneficiary, so yeah. you kind of you're led to believe that he's involved in it to begin with. But actually, no. He was as much of a, um, a pawn in it as anybody else. Yeah. So I kind of feel sorry for uh, uh, Baltus Van Tassel. He's uh, he is. 
I mean, it, it, Gambon's in awesome company here. The, yeah. the Shakespearean palette of actors that they have gathered together mm. to play the, um, the town elders and portray them in such a way that even before you know what's going on, it's got that Pixar thing of, well, these are the guys in charge. Obviously, it's them. Mm. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's the thing. It, it not being Baltus in the end is the big surprise. Yeah. Because like, he's the one who clearly would benefit from mm. all of this. Indeed. Because the plot all points towards him getting the seat of power vacated by the first guy who uh, uh, gets murdered by the horseman uh, after all the uh, sealing of the deal. Peter Van Garrett, remember him? Who's played by Martin Landau, who, of course, was in Edward with Johnny Depp in uh, uh, the mid-90s, which was the one where Tim Burton got all the brouhaha and all the Oscar because um, it was all about Hollywood during the Golden Age. <laughs> they like that. Yeah. And Van Garrett being decapitated leaves Van Tassel as the de facto leader of this particular township. So if, as a detective, you ask, who benefits? This guy. Maybe we should talk about it later, but I was really thinking to myself, is this a good mystery film? Like, can you figure this out, like the twist at the end beforehand? And I kind of don't think you can. I, th- I think they they play a little mean with some of the uh, yeah. some of the clues for the for the viewer. There's a couple of key characters who really needed to be more firmly delineated as to who they were at the beginning in the flashback so that you could yourself establish a motive for them rather than then finding it out after the fact. If you're going to craft a mystery, at the end you want the reader to go, shit, I had all the pieces, as opposed to, wait, I didn't have this, this, or this piece. I'll talk about at least one element of it, which is a massive dropped thread that's like, oh, that's awesome. Wait, what? You didn't do anything with that? I think you might be able to work out what that is, but... uh... Okay, we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, but yeah, we've got Jeffrey... Ugh. Jeffrey Jones. <laughs> we've got uh, um, avowed scumbag Jeffrey Jones, uh, who uh, was... Uh, Lauren, do you know all about Jeffrey Jones? Oh, yeah, this is before the Troubles. Um, yeah. He's no longer acting because of child pornography charges. But it's strange, because I've seen Jeffrey Jones a bazillion times in films, because mm. growing up, for whatever reason, I was really fond of a movie called uh, Stay Tuned. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Does he play Satan in that? Uh, he, he's either Satan or Satan's lackey. I, I think he's just Satan's lackey, because I'm pretty sure he gets torn apart by dogs at the end. Ouch. But, um, I mean... Couldn't happen know, to a nice guy, though. I was just about to say that, so... <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so Jeffrey Jones, it's like, well, obviously he's the bad guy. Yeah, like he is he's a king of shifty eyes. We should have known. Mm. In fact, it's uh, he's almost miscast in Beetlejuice as a result of that. Mm. He should yeah, be right. Eddie Barzoon the whole way through his career. <laughs> but um, also the fact that he is the uh, man of the cloth in this as well, mm. which it becomes rapidly apparent that that is maybe not as reliable as we would like to think in terms of being able to trust people. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And he's the sleaziest of the five, too. Isn't so it's like, he just? <laughs> there's some stuff where you're like, Jeffrey, was you, were you even asked to do that? Yeah. But his presence does also make me feel like there's a correlation between this and Deadwood. They've, Like I say, they've both got that feeling of... Uh, kind of American frontier town, albeit that this was sort of heading north on the east coast, and that was obviously heading west. Uh, you've also got uh, Richard Griffiths, that's uh, Vernon Dursley from the Harry Potter films, uh, as uh, the uh, what was he, the judge, uh, the magistrate. Yeah, magistrate. the magistrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and uh, we've got Ian McDermott, the Emperor himself, 
who had only just resurfaced on in major films in 1999. It's like, he came along in 1983, and he's this great theatre-trained actor, and he played Emperor Palpatine, and he seemed 180 years old in that. And then he came back, like, 16 years later to play a younger Sheev Palpatine in The Phantom Menace, and it's like, where's this guy been? He's awesome. And uh, honestly, there's some really good bits of uh, Ian McDermott in those prequels that are smashed to pieces when he goes way over the top in Revenge of the Sith. And that sucks because uh, he's actually really good at sort of holding it back in. He's far better when he talks like this. And now he's back this year in Rise of Skywalker. The Emperor Strikes Back. <laughs> Um, and it almost he doesn't get enough to do in this, frankly. Mm. I think that it's almost stunt casting. Uh, and we've also got Michael Goff. Uh, this might have been his last role, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, he uh, was um, fresh off uh, the... He was the survivor of the... Apart from uh, Pat Hingles. Uh, blah, 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 uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting out of the hospital, finally. <laughs> Who's coming to pick me up? Oh, Eckhart. Eckhart, sir. Oh, my God. <laughs> Commissioner Gordon. Um, I think he's the only person who's actually in all the uh, Batman films, the the four in the nineties yeah. as yeah. Alfred. Yeah, as Alfred. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a note that I saw that Burton actually tempted him out of retirement for this role. Oh, and it's a nice little uh, bit where he gets to play this really jittery, wormy uh, uh, notary, and uh, you know he's like, "Well, we we did not know it was a murder plot." Yeah. Like he's just this <laughs> frail old man. And uh, then you find out he got he was he hanged himself later, and then they 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 brush over it quick, and you're like, did did one of them hang him? Was that, was that a setup? But the I liked uh, what you pointed out that they are effectively these guys are the four pillars of American rule. Yeah, in a way, you've got um, Jeffrey Jones is the church, and. Um, Ian McDermott is the doctor, so he's medicine. medicine. And then Michael Goff being the notary is administrative law and Richard Griffiths as the magistrate is judicial law. And then obviously you've got um, uh, Van Garrett and now Baltus Van Tassel being the... Uh, the nominative leaders, but they don't, they're not leading out of any mm. specific expertise or anything. They just happen to own the most land. And everybody let everyone down. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the thing, like, even though I feel sorry for Baltus Van Tassel, when the chips were down and the town was panicking and he was supposed to step up and be leader, he grabbed a gun and pointed it at everyone and mm. said, I'm not going to die for all of you fuckers. To be fair, he shoots Jeffrey Jones. Yes. Yes. We, we must commend him for that. <laughs> but not before he could be bashed in Emperor Palpatine's head with a giant crucifix. And that actually does give me a little bit of hope about current circumstances because, let's face it, when push comes to shove, these guys are going to eat each other. Yeah, like like a bunch of Skeksis. Yeah, huh? <laughs> Also, yeah, the, 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 having all of these, you know, wonderful character actors all together in the same in the same sort of you know, parlor scene at the beginning, it's like this is a Hammer horror film, and it has that that feeling to it. A lot of it feels like it's outside. The stuff that feels like it sets there's there's a particular graveyard sh scene where sheep go running around the place, mm. which feels like well that's probably a set. 
but you're never quite sure because they do so well of, of, of setting the stage for this gothic kind of otherworldly sort of grey countryside. I think the trick is a light touch with the uh, the dry ice and the mm. mist because if you're in a closed set, the presence of mist can give it away because it doesn't dissipate. If you're yeah. outside, it kind of stays close to the ground and disappears rather quickly. That is a fine point. Um, it also helps that they built the town of Sleepy Hollow, like literally built it in England. Mm. So the weather was very appropriate for what yeah. they wanted. <laughs> Maybe that's why it felt so atmospheric, because we had the same friggin' thing outside the window today. And the whole yeah. place feels quite claustrophobic and hemmed in, like the, like it's surrounded by the forest. Mm. And it is just this clearing where people try to live but there's this darkness out there and they're not like when the horseman starts coming for them they have nowhere to run they have no recourse no protector nothing to do and uh, Ichabod's just there to try and work this shit out but the very men who are supposed to be protecting them are all part of this conspiracy Mm. yeah Mm -hmm. exactly and like any good American town they shoot it (laughs) (laughs) That's the way forward. (laughs) (laughs) On a side note, uh, Baltus van Tassel's name, and since this was a Dutch settlement, uh, inspired the character of Dutch van Tassel in Arlington, uh, played by Lou Fernandez, who I didn't want to make a direct Trump analogue. He's just every greasy fucking politician ever. Ah, miss, may I offer you a canopy? They're all the rage in France, I hear. Thank you, I had canopies for lunch. I'm just gonna... With whom am I speaking? I'm Abigail Gray, one of the poor saps being sent south in that steam-powered death trap. And you must be the mayor of Washington. Oh, this chain? (laughs) No, I'm not mayor yet, but this is my solid gold promise to you. The name's Dutch Van Tassel, and I will be campaigning for president this very year. I find nothing more fascinating than politics and political intrigue. And as it turns out, I'm exceedingly gifted in that regard. My intention once I'm in office will be to bring back the dollar, do away with this military credit silliness, and start America's businesses back up again. Oh, you're that guy. Where's your associate, Maurice? Alas, I could not gain Maurice access to a gathering of such finery. He's very much a street-level fellow. But it pays to know the man with the ear of the poor. No shit, I heard he was a gangster. Oh, stuff and nonsense. Maurice is an entrepreneur. I thought with military credit that pretty much ruled out expensive business on the side. Precisely my point. We need to bring this country back to a state where intrepid investors like Maurice can thrive. So he's bankrolling your campaign? He is one of the contributors. But there has been a great deal of interest in my ascendance. Does he get to sleep in the president's bed, or are you going to organize him a little apartment in the city? (laughs) Well, now, where did such a pretty girl like you get such a head for politics? Oh, I hate politics. Bores the crap out of me. You know what? Me too. We are very much alike, you and I. No, we're not. And you just said the exact opposite, so at least one of those is an outright lie. Um... He's giving people comfortable lies rather than uncomfortable truths. Mm. Okay, so the history of the Hessian warrior, and this is a a dual role, effectively. We've got the headed horseman and the headless horseman. When he's got a head, he's Christopher Walken, and he looks like a monster. (laughs) And when he's not got a head, he's uh, Ray Park, and he moves almost exactly like Darth Maul. And at the same time, I never really felt that they weren't 
just this one entity. Mm. It, it felt like once he'd had his head lopped off, he moved with a lot more unholy purpose. But there's this determination about uh, and, uh, and the, 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 the stride of this. I mean, remember, of course, Ray Park's quite short. So to be that imposing, especially without a head... Uh, it's... Well, I'm assuming that his head was just below the top of the overcoat. No, they just I think they just um, gave him the old uh, uh, green head thingy job. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Really? I find that surprising because I was really certain that they had done essentially what uh, Brom does in the in the film and just wear the kind of like big His arms overcoat. wouldn't be in the right place. <laughs> it would look so weird. That would make a lot of sense if they had managed to green screen it out. I'm just impressed that it didn't like blur anything for no, 1999 well, say, CGI. If that, if that is how they did it, I didn't see the join at all. Mm. And the rest of the CGI in this film is rough. They oh they are quite light with it, but uh, like when it's tendrils of roots of a tree, that's pretty good. When it's CGI blood, especially at the end when it's it's festooned. Uh, you know, pouring out of the tree. Oh, it looks like shit. <laughs> oh, and and that's not even to mention the like bulging eyes and bulging tongue stuff that they do twice in this oh, yeah. film. Yeah, it's yeah. just yeah. real bad. Yeah, we'll get to that bit in <laughs> in due course. But uh, yeah, there's uh, the 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 bit where the uh, horseman get pulls himself back together and goes, and his eyes come bugging out. That's like something out of Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah, there I you mean, go. No, I was absolutely right. Yep, it's he's a, got a blue. He's got a blue muscle. pair of underpants on his face. <laughs> that's so. <laughs> That's so wild, but that makes sense because he does move with such purpose, and I was yeah. so, I was wondering how they did that. Yeah, no, they, it make, it make, I mean, it's it's the same way they got um, Gary Sinise's uh, lower legs to disappear in Forrest Gump, and, and like I said, ultimately, if they'd messed around with like trying so, you know, some weird practical setup for it, it wouldn't really have looked like what they could do at the time. It would have been a throwback to the eighties mm. when they couldn't do this. Yeah. Perfectly. But they've, they've managed to blend it in such a way that there's a bit of a question mark over it, which makes it look like it's done practically. Yeah. And he's got a definite, like, threat to him. He's, uh, uh, especially when you see it for the first time, he's, like, stalking all over the place. There's a lot of attentive foley work to make sure that his footsteps are very resonant. You can hear him coming for you on four feet or two. And and seeing uh, Christopher Walken going fucking crazy in the flashbacks, uh, like you, you you do believe that he's this sort of you know chaotic evil warrior, but he is being targeted, so his chaos is kept in check by another party. There's a point later on where the horseman busts into the midwife's house, kills the dad, kills the midwife, and then he's on the way out and he stops and he goes, wait a second. And then he smashes open the floorboards to pull out their young son. Uh, it cuts away, but like he murders a small child and puts his head in a duffel bag. Well, technically, he's already murdered an unborn child. Yeah, he murders the widow Winship before the film begins. But it turns out she was pregnant with the bastard of Van Garrett. Mm. He's, this is not a nice dude. Yeah, no, but here's the thing. Um, Brom attacks him and so does Ichabod. <laughs> And he bisects Brom, cuts him in half, and doesn't kill Ichabod, which made me wonder, is it that uh, he has been told deliberately not to kill Ichabod, because Ichabod has to find out, has to have it pinned 
and have this mystery solved so we can go back to New York and say, business as usual, this is fine, we need Ichabod to live. That would kind of stand to reason, and it's never really explained at the end. Or is it Katrina's magic that protects him? Well, and there's also the element of you don't want to kill the constable because that'll bring down more yeah. constables on you. But that scene, that scene looks so much more like the horseman just kind of gets mad at them for continuing to attack him yeah. until Brom kind of pins him against that wall. And he's like, well, all right, well, you need to die now. So, like, like please go away. Um, so but Ichabod was, survives because he's a nerdy weakling who can be easily flung to one side. Who doesn't continuously run after him, poking him in the back. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But they do say, like, oh, that, like, that should have killed you, and that wound looks angry, but you'll live. Which, I mean, whew, antibiotics, that's, that would have <laughs> probably helped, but... Um, that's what the arrow root's for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. Um, I think they, they sort of point out that they didn't need to stitch it or anything, and I, I thought it was in part connected with what they'd said before about the, the horseman's weapon cauterizing the mm-hmm. wounds... Which uh, the, would make sense. That yeah. would prevent a lot of infection from getting in. Indeed. But so. I do think that Katrina's magic has something to do with it, and he very specifically is saved from the bullet at the end because he has her book mm-hmm. on that side of his jacket. Mm. Yeah. And she does specifically say to, like, keep it over your heart and it will protect you, mm. which is, like, a nice callback. Yeah, and it also sets up one of the oldest tropes in the uh, book. Usually it's a Bible, but in her case it's a... It's a, book, a compendium of spells and charms. Which is rather important. Indeed. Yeah. It's, uh, it's actually, I love that book as a, a little kind of mirror of uh, the massive family Bible that um, I think it's her father throws down on the table at the beginning that's mm-hmm. got the family tree at the beginning of it with the Van Garretts and the Van Tassels and kind of leads to the discussion of everybody in this town is kind of incestuous, incestuously linked to everyone else by either blood or marriage or, or, or whatever. Both. And it, it sort of really gives you that sense of this enclosed little community where everybody knows everybody else's business. And, and one of the main themes about the film for me is this idea of you, you can't those kind of of enclosed communities there are always secrets but they are ultimately poisonous because you can't keep them as secrets they seep out and they affect everybody they bleed out it's a swamp absolutely and uh, and Katrina's book is like a little because she's inherited it from her mother this little spell book feels like the sort of matrilineal mirror to that patriarchal bible Mm. Mm. that's an interesting uh, take on that because and i'm immediately qualifying it please don't yell at me (laughs) because my mirror for that book was actually ichabod's big book where he keeps all of his thoughts and drawings and science because by the time where he is kind of giving up and leaving he decides that this book of science and reason that has been somewhat infected by his love for katrina as we find on the one page is just not useful to him anymore because there's an actual headless horseman going around killing people. So what even is this? And he throws that into the fire and then pulls out the small magic book to throw in there too, but decides not to for 
one reason or another. Specifically, I, I think it's out of love, but also a, an embracing of the importance of myth and superstition and, and magic. You know, the older science, mm. if you will, which flies in the face of the uh, of Irving's conclusion of the original um, novelette, mm. uh, which is "Shut up, you idiot! There's no such thing as goblins." <laughs> Nothing, I tell you. But the but that for me is the is the essence of this because and and you know how much I like things that blend art and science or you know mm-hmm. magic and and realist uh, realism but the 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 kind of opposed paths of science and religion and then the kind of the more nature-based magic being this middle road that is fed into by both because you you kind of you're your herbs and your and that kind of thing is scientific. There are actual chemicals in those that you can use to do real, actual things, such as the bark of the willow tree. No chanting required. Well, <laughs> exactly. that's what I was. That was what I was going to say, though, is because um, medicine is just magic that works. Mm. And nice. And <laughs> science is too, and that's the thing that I love about this film, actually, because so much of media is looking at that dichotomy and saying you can only take one of these. But a true witch knows that science and magic are complementary, not at odds. Absolutely. And it's it, I like that that is the conclusion of this film as well, because he blows up a, a, the windmill, which is a very scientific thing, because that's a very real thing that would happen because the uh, powder from the flower is actually very combustible and very flammable and windmills have blown up all the time. Mm-hmm. And he used that so that they could escape from the Headless Horseman when it all seemed lost. So he was using science against a thing that was magic, but knowing that the way that he had to fight the magic was through embracing it. Alternately, Tim Burton just has a boner for James Wells' Frankenstein, and he had to have a windmill, and he had to burn it down. So they literally go, let's run into this windmill. Oh, we burned it down. Then they run out of the windmill. Yeah, watch your head. <laughs> yeah, it's... I, I, Either way works. It, but you're probably right. Um, Either way works. Like, see, I, 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 like, I prefer the idea that we can infer way more depth into this film than Tim Burton would ever imagine because we have to yeah well I mean it's just like the uh, the cardinal in the birdcage optical illusion mm. is it is it science is it magic it's both it just depends on your perspective Bingo. but if we go back to uh, the murdered child uh, that uh, means uh, <laughs> to to, uh, to get to the uh, uh, the actual culprit of this particular mystery folks if you haven't seen the film uh, spoilers do you, do you want to go see uh, Sleepy Hollow before you find this one out It's Miranda Richardson who is uh, uh, the obviously perfectly cast lampshaded gloating villain, especially if you've watched Black Adder. Uh, and um, Miranda Richardson, I believe I christened yeah. her. <laughs> who is Baltus Van Tassel's uh, wife, but she's more than that. And she's controlling the horseman. But here's the thing, just to, just to go back a little bit. He was a Hessian warrior sent by the Germans? He was a Germans. German mercenary. German mercenary. Yeah, the, the Germans hired out packs of mercenaries to the British army 
in lots of circumstances, but particularly in the American Revolutionary War. Mm. So effectively, they sent out, they, they had all of these incredible warriors and no one for them to fight. So they were like, well, we could hire these guys out, make ourselves a mint. Uh, but it, it means that the, the Hessian was very much a weapon. And so he was, to begin with, so, so positioning him in that way... Mm in the story is a, is a really smart way of going the horseman is working for someone else and will do as he's told because that's all he knows mm, yeah miranda richardson is one of two twin girls who saw him uh, when he was uh, in the forest being hunted by uh, was it the americans that, uh, I, i'm was, assuming mm-hmm. that yeah it was the yeah, the, uh, the colonials, colonials yeah. uh, and uh, uh, we can infer that she was the one of the two little girls who snapped the big stick to alert attention to the headless horseman thus effectively she made him headless uh, by uh, uh, um uh, and sealed his doom but she also uh, at that point made a deal with Satan himself. And it takes an actress of Miranda Richardson's caliber to be able to say this uh, and and keep a straight enough face. Uh, she, she signed a deal with Satan that uh, she could utilize the abilities of the horseman now that he's dead. Uh, it, it's such a... Like, there's so many questions. It's like, like this guy, this horseman... <laughs> would actually have been quite useful to you there as an alive horseman. You orchestrated his death on the supposition that you could snare his ghost and get him to be your sellsword. I mean, she wasn't going to have the money to buy a Hessian mercenary. That's true, actually. So, yeah, she's she's one of two uh, girls evicted from their house uh, by... Uh, Van Garrett. Van Garrett. Uh, so that he can give the cottage to... Van Tassel. Uh, Baltus Van Tassel. Yeah. So effectively she ended up homeless uh, with these guys living in her home. And uh, Katrina, Christina Ricci, uh, was so, uh, soon born to this new family. So she spe- has a specific resentment for Katrina. Snuck in as a nurse um, when uh, Van Tassel's wife became ill. My suspicion is she made her ill and made uh, and and uh, finished her off sixth sense style, and then insinuated herself within into the marriage bed and became his new wife. And this whole thing has been both a power play to get uh, herself uh, and Van Tassel to the top of the uh, ladder and to rule this town and to take it over from Van Garrett, who was going to give his uh, leave all of his lands because he's the guy ruling the town, to the widow Winship and Van Garrett's bastard, who was probably going to inherit the town, question mark. But here's the thing. That all boils down to, the horseman does what he's told, and that means she said, oh, and kill the fucking kid too. Her words aside, we don't see her making a deal with Satan. I think that's more just flavor on her part, like saying, oh, I made this dark pact kind of thing. Mm. But I, I feel like the horseman was fueled by just the rage and hate that he had in life and her taking the, the skull was all that she needed to do because when he kills that child under the floorboards he didn't have a reason for that either because Lady Mary Van Tassel says at the end that the reason that the midwife and her man had to be killed was because she knew the secret and said it to her in front of her husband what a goose but what a goose! But um, but she didn't say anything about the child being there. Yeah. And I feel like maybe the headless horseman just 
likes killing innocents. I mean, he's a he didn't, he didn't seem like a particularly nice guy. Yeah, the way it ends is they toss the stolen skull back to the headless horseman who puts it on his head, grows Christopher Walken's head back in a grotesque display of early 2000s CG, picks up Miranda Richardson, and at this point he's very Frankenstein. And it's like, Tim, I know you feel sorry for Frankenstein, you identify with Frankenstein's monster, but this guy murders children for fun, not by accident. So Miranda Richardson wakes up and he's looking down on her with his filed down sharp teeth and bright, bright blue eyes, gives her a big old smooch. And God knows what's happening in there because blood starts pouring out of both their mouths. And it's made apparent she's not the least bit happy with this fact. And then he goes, yeah, and rides into this twisted tree, which, by the way, is this fantastic piece of iconography that, like, you could sum up all of Sleepy Hollow with this witchy, curving, claw-like crescent of a tree. And blood, CGI blood, geysers out of the tree, leaving just a hand poking out. It's very spectacular and confused. They are kind of supposed to be as bad as each other. There is, for me, there was meant to be a a closing sentiment, if anything, of, well, these two are going to go off to hell together and they're as bad as each other and Hmm. they're probably going to... And now she's stuck with him. ...bicker for eternity. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he seems much more like a force of nature, very much like that weapon that you ascribed before, but there is a malice to his actions... Hmm. But let me uh, talk about this drop thread. There's a twin to Miranda Richardson's Lady Van Tassel. She has a twin. Her name's Mary Archer. Lady Mary Van Tassel. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, these were the Archer twins who were turfed out of their cottage by Van Garrett to make way for the Van Tassel family. And at some point over the years in between, that cottage was burned to the ground. In the meantime, both twin girls grew up and seemingly lived in the forest for 18 years. After which point, Mary made sure Mrs. Van Tassel died and married Mr. Van Tassel, leaving her sister living in the woods. Ichabod wanders into a section of the forest which is uh, extra spooky and has chanting to it, and wanders in to see this hag who tells him about the horseman who keeps her face veiled. And watching this sequence, after having seen a bunch of del Toro films like Pan's Labyrinth, like Hellboy 2... It just goes so fucking over the top when Mm -hmm. just hold it in, let the veil stay down, maybe take it up and just have it be Doug Jones underneath going, ah, like that. (laughs) And then uh, doing the the, the hag routine and telling. Effectively, it's just a bit of information about the horseman. And it's this twin sister and you think that she might be behind it or controlling him. And then it turns out that she's not. And, like, snakes come out of her eyes at one point, and it's, it's this horrible, like, 1990s screensaver thing. Pardon our intrusion, but uh, perhaps you could help us. You're from the Hollow. Yes, in a way, yes. I should like to say that I, I make no assumptions about your occupation. No, your ways, which, 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 which are nothing to me, whatever you are. Each to his own. Go out, child. Keep away. Whatever you hear, keep away. 
So far so good, very atmospheric, she seems very creepy, the actress playing her is really getting into the role. Then she chains herself to the table pointlessly because she then immediately breaks the chains when she becomes possessed by the spirit of a Kandarian demon. Yes, it can. But here's the thing. This is Miranda Richardson's twin sister, right? Miranda Richardson's character fakes her own death. First off, she has sex with Jeffrey Jones, and that is taking one for the team. (laughs) Having lured Ichabod to spy on her, cuts her own hand, and goes like, look at this, I've cut my own hand at Ichabod. And then Jeffrey Jones fucking licks it. It's like, oh! Sleaziest motherfucker yeah. in town. Then, the, uh, like, the afternoon afterwards, she goes, I noticed you haven't looked at my hand. You've neither looked at it nor commented on it. I have this hand problem. I know you saw me. Just like, just so you can see, this hand wound, right? Hand wound. And Ichabod's like, yes. <laughs> and then she's just gathering, was it? Witch hazel. It's arrowroot. It's arrowroot. The cut because gathering the wild arrowroot in this gorgeous Purple dress that I'm like, you never wore that at any other point. They're going in the to film? a town meeting. She's oh, dressed up for the meeting. Such a great dress. Anyway. So the horseman approaches behind and then happens. Because Van Tassel rides into town who was he was watching his wife when the horseman turned up and he goes, My wife's been killed by the horseman. How? Exactly, like, like it, either he said would say, "Come with me, get on my horse, quick." The horseman's there, or I'm leaving, and just gallop away, <laughs> having left his wife for dead. Or he would have seen the horseman apparently chop her head off? Question mark. Like they're about to reveal that she's behind the whole thing anyway, but um, it's a, there's a big question mark over exactly what happens there. No, there isn't. She says. What happens there? Okay. She she says that the he saw the horseman walk towards me with the sword unsheathed, yeah. but he didn't stay around to see what happened. Okay, there you go. So it's not a question. She actually does say he ran away and decided that he put two and two together. Like a bitch. Yeah. Yeah, he and, was just a coward. And, uh, and she was banking on that, knowing that he was a man of frail disposition. Which he is in the end. Like he's the one who grabs the gun and goes, "Get the fuck away from me!" Um, 
But here's the thing. She goes, ah, that hand. Remember that hand? Uh, you had to find a headless corpse with the hand wound. Luckily, the maid provided me the corpse. And she chops the head off her maid, who we see earlier in the movie going, thank God you're here, Ichabod. Um, you know, you know, this, this town is cursed. And then she cuts the hand of the maid. And Ichabod, using his forensics, works out that the cut was made post-mortem. So it, it didn't have that uh, healing, which is, would be required of a several days old cut. Mm-hmm. However, she then chops the head off her exact double. Are you seeing what I'm getting at here, Lauren? She's got a literal physical double of herself out in the woods, and she has to kill the maid to provide the headless body. Leave the maid alive! You know, that's a real, real good point, because... What is the I- point of saying that, that she's got a twin sister who she beheads and then beheads someone else to be the imposter body? This is Halloween, this is Halloween, pumpkins scream in the it definitely didn't make sense to me that Sarah, the maid, one, came to Ichabod at the beginning and said, like, you know, thank God you're here. It's just like, okay, does she know what's going on? Like, why, why is she worried? That was and set then, up for just, just so you know the maid exists. Well, and then she just vanishes, even though she was apparently like a crucial leverage for one of the town elders and, you know, was killed. I, I think they just needed to get their decapitation, like, quota <laughs> and they were one short these they, happen they on really screen did. within seconds of each other and mm-hmm. i never really started going hang on until today it just doesn't make sense like why not just having killed your sister like and hid her near the crime scene hid her headless body like whacked an ident- like, whacked that dress on her body and then there you go well, it, w- it would even make sense like oh the horseman came to kill uh baltus but Altus ran. So I need a, an alibi real quick. I'm going to go off into the woods while the horseman's doing my job, and I need a body that looks an awful lot like me. Yeah. And, like, have that be the impetus of, like, oh, because as it stands, she's just this, like, cunning mastermind, knows everything that's going. But that moment of just being like, oh, I got to be flexible on this one. Well, I know where I can get a body that looks like me. And Kill the mate. <laughs> Yeah. Well, but, but that, that she... the sister thing, if you've had uh, some indication that there's actually anything, any closeness between them, that kind of. Which, by the way, would be great characterization. It would, but that mm-hmm. would add on to this sort of spiral of you, you started this whole thing just so that you could get your old cottage back, and we can empathize with that. We can understand how angry you were and frustrated you are that it got taken away. But lie has begat lie and murder has begat murder and now you're having to lop the head off your own sister to tie up your own loose ends. For reasons unknown, by the way. It has never gone into... So why this twin sister? And the other thing is, like, you got a twin sister there, that means you can have Miranda Richardson go, what? And then Baltus Van Tassel can look at her and then see her get beheaded by the headless horseman then we literally see it happen mm. on screen yeah. and then yeah. later find out that wasn't Miranda Richardson that was Miranda Richardson's sister who, who, while Miranda Richardson like went and hid in the underbrush but aside from the uh, the the old crone scene yeah 
You don't need that sister at all. She, no. She, when they turn up, when the Hessian turns up, when they're kids, and they're both of them are stood there, Miranda Richardson's child self is the mm. one that's got the meat of all the action. Her sister literally just drops her wood and runs away. Out of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but like, this is not a film-breaking thing. Like I said, we've seen it for 20 years, and only now is it like, hang on a minute. It's just a really good example of if you're going to craft a mystery, get all the pieces laid out, mm-hmm. and everything thing that just doesn't fit but doesn't function as a really good red herring get rid of it yeah which i think honestly speaks to what lauren was saying before about it this doesn't really work as a mystery it's not a mystery story the point is not for the audience to work it out it ain't a harry potter there are too many twists that are not twists but are in fact vestigial bits stapled (laughs) on Well, and even more to your point, Alex, we do know exactly when she kills Sarah, and it's like a week before that body is used in her plot. Yeah. So, I mean, the oh, the 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 hand, the hand is was the cut was after the, she was dead. Also, she's been dead for a week. <laughs> <laughs> she literally smells like she's been dead for a week. Yeah. Oh my like, god, like, you're like, absolutely right. And it, it, it's almost like if you didn't have the sister. You wouldn't. You could then use the maid and just have them find the trees from some other yeah. means. Or if you didn't have the maid, you would use the sister. But they put in both because, and I mentioned this in the green room. I feel like this movie, Tim Burton in general, I think is is like this. He loves the trappings of gothic storytelling, but not necessarily the genre tropes and the elements of it. Because I was comparing this, and you've mentioned it already with uh, Crimson, Crimson Peak, Peak in a lot of ways. And this they look very similar, very of a kind, of a piece, especially a lot of the outfits, as we were talking about. But I don't think Sleepy Hollow or Tim Burton as a director understands the underpinnings of gothic mystery anywhere near what Del Toro oh, understands Christ. for gothic romance. Yeah. And it's all of the trappings, but it's a very shallow kind of use of it, which isn't necessarily bad or good. It just means that, you know, it looks really good. Yeah. He's the theme park version of Gothic. He can bring it to the people who are, let's say, goth curious. Mm. Yeah, that's not a bad way to look at it. That is not me being gatekeepery about the Gothic aesthetic. Come in, the more the merrier. You like Tim Burton? We have such sights to show you. It's it's honestly like he's a good gateway drug for for, for goth uh, style. Oh hell's yeah! Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Beetlejuice and Batman him. Returns. That was my in. Yeah. It's just that <laughs> there isn't the firm footing and the the, the real well, it's, solidness it's, to it. It's about as deep as the pan stick makeup. It's not got that that things deeply buried sense mm. that that gothic stories have that they are about that it's things that are concealed things that are hidden and it's Tim Burton stuff tends to be more things that are wearing a black velvet jacket Mm. yeah one glove and the cinematography really helps that too like he knows how to set up a shot that is very gothic in trappings yeah but the story the screenplay eh, gets away from him I think a little bit Mm. The other thing is, um, if you've got the maid that you then killed, like, you kill an old hag who lives in the forest, ain't nobody coming looking for her. If you kill the maid, eventually someone's going to go, where's the maid? Well, um, Katrina actually asks. Katrina says, I haven't seen Sarah. Where is Sarah? And uh, Mary Mary Von Tassel says, 
oh, she fled town just like so many others from uh-huh. all of this. But that's why we know exactly when Sarah dies. Mm. And it is way in advance of when that body is used in the plot, which is why it's very strange to me that they even had that, other than the scenes of seeing Miranda Richardson cutting off people's heads, which really, really positions her as the horseman's equal, like the horseman's partner. Yeah. Oh, uh, cinematographer, by the way, Emmanuel Lubezki uh, did Children of Men, Gravity, The Revenant, Birdman, seems to work a lot with uh, Alejandro Iñárritu. Dang. Those are some of those films have really, really good cinematography yeah. from my memory. Absolutely. Oh, and Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events from the, uh, the original film with Jim ah. Carrey. Love that movie. <laughs> Ali. He was the DP for Ali. I love this guy. Itu Mama Tambian. It's real good. The cinematography throughout is top notch. Just yeah. every shot is set up in a really, really specific way. And I, I kept noticing it throughout. I wrote so many notes about it. Um, to counterpoint this uh, dark, nasty witchery, uh, Ichabod keeps flashing back throughout his uh, adventure to something unformed from his childhood. He seems to be about eight years old, if that, maybe seven. He said he's seven. Seven. Uh, and uh, he keeps remembering his mother, played by Lisa Marie, a woman that uh, Tim Burton was briefly... Uh, she was basically his muse, much like Helena Bonham Carter became. And uh, at the moment, it seems to be uh, Eva Green. But uh, she's, it's a contrast to all of this dark grey and, and, and uh, insipid colour scheme because you've got this sort of lovely soft pink of cherry blossoms and she's got a very vibrant blue dress and you've got green around it and there is the the screen is telling you on no uncertain terms this is good this is gentle this is warm and although she does look sort of kind of alluring and she has that sort of beguiling look that lisa marie has she was the martian agent in um uh mars attacks um, mm. it's, it's, it's got a suggestion that, you know, and, and, and she's levitating later on. She is a witch, but a good witch. And all of her spells seem to be uh, very gentle and protective. And he starts to think about her. What one would imagine, uh, uh that, uh, Katrina sort of reminds him on, a, on some very, uh, uh, primal level. Well, she seems to have learned very similar things from her own mother. There's a lot of overlap between mm. the, the magic that the, the two, maternal figures have shown their children and the way Christina Ricci's character is dressed as well her colour schemes tend towards as you say that sort of pastel Mm. pinks and greens and blues and his father who turns up uh, you know grimly like fucking Jack out of the Shining he's got this uh, you know he's got the wig on and he is described literally as a bible black tyrant now, if that ain't drawing a line in the sand, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. And, it, and you've got that very stark colour scheme as well. I loved that. When Ichabod's sitting in the church, it's it's obviously the kind of church that has been hastily built for a new community rather than being what we tend to think of churches as being in Big the old UK, stone buildings. In things the that are... Thousand years old and made of stone, um, and all stained glass and and um, elaborate 
altars inside and things and this is very stark it's all white the church the cross is white the pews are white it's just it's blank and specifically it's meaningless it's empty for Ichabod it has no um, connection to him at all so you've got this white church around him this and then this very red door that leads through into the black torture chamber so you've got that that very um Spanish Inquisition, if nothing else. Well, absolutely. Like, but the the fact that you've got those three very... I'm trying to think of the right word. The, there's a contrast between the gentle, natural pastels mm. and black, red, white. Yeah. The ablation board in uh, uh, Golden Compass as mm. well. Yeah. The, the idea that behind these closed doors we will do unspeakable things to you in our uh, efforts to maintain a seat of power. Mm. And that door leading into that room is blood, blood red. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as it turns out, uh, his mother was put in the Iron Maiden and comes pouring out of it later on. And it's, it's an absolutely horrific scene, but it's cruelty. It's, uh, it's an obscene treatment specifically of women, and it evokes what uh, was done uh, to women accused of being witches by the church in a way that uh, Joe Rowling would never even dream of implying. Like I say, it makes that distinction. And it's actually kind of ballsy for this movie to deliberately position the church as maybe the greatest villain in this. Yeah, and it it reminded me very much of another show that we did with Lauren, uh, Senua's Sacrifice, where Mm -hmm. there's a, a heavily religious father who has married a woman who is uh, very engaged with a much more natural form of magic and then turns on her for it. And I said to you, what is it with these priesty guys marrying witches and then getting pissed about it? It's like marrying a stripper or a porn actress and then getting really upset when she does literally what she does. It's it just, it screams of... Male insecurity? Need for control, insecurity and a lack of being able to allow people to be who they are. Yeah. And like I said, it's it's ballsy in that it doesn't present a sympathetic religious Christian in the film at all. It's all like, it's very pro-paganism. Oh yeah. And even the, the, the dark mother, the bad witch, she still did good for the town, right? All these fuckers were creeps. (laughs) (laughs) In a matter of speaking. Yeah. She took them out. It yeah. was for a power play. It's just, it's inadvertently she ended up taking herself out as well. Yeah, but it, it is presented in such a way that there is a streak of empathy there for her. And it is presented as these dudes sowed the seeds of their own destruction mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. walking in and going, oh, yes, this is all ours, obviously. And, and she did as well. She becomes that which she hates and is yeah. destroyed by it just as they were. Yeah, because she, she ends up taking on their... Um, their motivation, which is, I want to own all this land for myself. The fact that she has a much more clear um, underpinning reason for it, they want it just to have it, because that's what you do when you're a, a big fancy man with tassels on your jacket. Well, yeah, and she's subverting the natural order away from you know what living with nature, being a child of nature, as they put it uh, in this movie, um, that she wants to own it rather than live with it. Mm. And that is her true downfall. Yeah. Yeah. 
Also, like uh, Katrina, played by Christina, which we barely talked about, she's quite slight and delicate throughout the movie, and, and it did feel a bit like she was particular, like she's not a modern day heroine of like being very assertive. She is not Ray, mm. and she's not, uh, you know, like I will get to the bottom of this one because I've got to avenge or find out about why my mother died, and, and, and that she's ultimately she's there for protection and she's there for support. I do like the fact that Ichabod is not necessarily tougher than her. They both faint when they become overcome. Yeah, this is true. And there are several moments where she actually proves to have slightly more to her constitution than he does. Um, But I was slightly squicked by the fact that Christina Ricci is young enough to be Johnny Depp's daughter. There is that. And also the fact that she played Winona Ryder's very little sister in Mermaids. Mermaids, And Johnny Depp having been Winona Ryder's ex-boyfriend, it just... It's not a, a great bit. fit. Oh. It's like moving on to the younger sister. <laughs> also, she's Wednesday Adams, and that feels yeah. wrong. That's what I knew her from. Yeah, yeah. I, the end of this movie always strikes me as weird, and I'm just like, and there goes Ichabod Crane with his child bride and his <laughs> She has a maturity strange. about her as an actress, but uh, yeah, in terms of actual yeah. years, she was 19 when this film was made. Johnny Depp was 36. And so she's my age, which means when he was in A Nightmare on Elm Street, she was four. Ugh. And you could say, girls married young in 1799. It was accurate to the time, but then so was state-mandated genocide. I really did like Katrina, though, Mm. because uh, to me, being a woman in that part of society, that like higher upper crust, if you will, with all those other odious, odious men, she probably wouldn't be familiar with having that kind of uh, forward agency that they would, that like physical, but she uses the the magic and the witchcraft to still act on the events as they go forward. She draws the symbols and, and does the spells and things, kind of helping in her own way, in a way that is subversive to the role that she would not be allowed to play given the time period yeah. and, and being a woman. She's not a wilting flower. She does decide, right, I'm, I, I know one spell, it's a good one, and that is for the protection of people that I care about. She uses it to protect Ichabod, putting it under his bed. Then she uses it to protect the church when notably the clergyman in charge of the church has betrayed the whole town. The reason the horseman can't get into the church is not because it's a church and it's holy ground, it's because she consecrates it. Yeah, I didn't even think about it that way. I like that. Um, But also, I think what what carries her character, or not carries it, but, but allows it to be what it is, is that she's not the only girl in the village. And that's something that we've, we've talked about before. If you're going to have women in your movie, you need at least three so that we can see that there is a variety yeah. of women acting in different ways. So you've got, um, you've got Katrina, who, yes, has this sort of very gentle uh, maternal protectiveness, which is emphasised by the fact that she's an echo of uh, Ichabod's mother. But then you've also got Mary, who takes this kind of... Um, murderous and and wicked yes but it is agency in the only way that she sees she can take it Um, and then you've also got it's a tiny character but the midwife who Mm -hmm. is who in the 
brief moments that she has on screen comes across to me as being much more of an active person and um, you know obviously she has a part to play in the whole conspiracy as well Mm. Um, but the so you've got the maiden definitely Mm -hmm. the dark one Mm -hmm. definitely the The mother mother. what you're missing is a great big crone we get a crone in the cave yeah. and they failed to specify to that she was a crone and to make her into that kind of wise woman yeah, she's just that. a fireworks display yeah that's well, true with is, snakes I, bugging out of her eyes I was so she's like a Mortal Kombat <laughs> I was so excited for this though because the maiden mother crone trichotomy is one of my favorite things to talk with Sharon about mm-hmm. um, for it, in these movies because we do you know Katrina's clearly the maiden but we have I would say the midwife and Ichabod's mother mm. and to a lesser extent Katrina's mother even though yeah. she doesn't appear in the film the are, mothers are all absent and the widow Winship as well they've all been killed well they've been killed by the dark mother the one that was a mother that was moving to crone and refused to take that role yeah and so she again decided this to, is uh, suggestive that if they'd worked on her twin sister and made her the crone figure and actually developed the character rather than having the big reveal mm. would have been a better film or if she and and it implies that if Mary von Tassel would have accepted the crone role and not done all of this and not killed all of the mothers and subverted the natural order that the town would be in a much better state oh yeah and that her selfishness and her desire for revenge and her fear of moving into that role to be like her sister is why she goes on to destroy the mother and assert herself into that role which i believe is pretty solidly like the dark mother archetype nice and bear in mind she wouldn't have been filled with all this bitterness or compelled towards revenge without the landowner van garrett tossing her family out of their house to gift it to van tassel men seeking to leverage power made this monster And on the other hand, Katrina asks at least twice, do you think me wicked? She's well aware of the fact that she's using magic. She's trying to keep it hidden from the town. She's worried they will persecute her, and they probably would. Ichabod's mother was tortured to death for the exact same harmless practices. That makes me feel like the dark sister of this film is the witch. If you've not seen this 2016 New England folktale, it's set in the 17th century and concerns banished Puritans. It's slow and quiet and creeping as their options and sensibilities are eroded, leading to the madness by the end, all of which could have been prevented by just everybody being a lot more understanding. What's that like to live deliciously? Uh, and instead, uh, uh, Tim Burton did what uh, Sharon described as, and specifically we were talking about the crone scene, spunking cobwebs at the screen until he gets something usable. <laughs> <laughs> the trappings, not the, the not the substance. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking but, of the mother maiden crone and all of the witchery, though, mm-hmm. did you two notice how many horned animal uh, busts are in this film? I did not. No. They are all over the place. When he enters the town of Sleepy Hollow, he crosses a bridge flanked on either side by large stag heads. Mm-hmm. When he reaches when he reaches the Von Tassel's house, their door knockers are bull heads. 
whenever he goes out to watch uh, Mary, Mary Von Tassel, they uh, go past two different stuffed uh, deer heads. It, there's there's a lot of horned animal imagery, especially around him arriving to this witch besotted town mm. and specifically following the dark witch out. And I I thought was pretty like a pretty well considered thing. The two stuffed deer heads are very uh beaten down and worn with time and I believe one of them is even rendered to just a skull which is very appropriate given that he is chasing this dark witch while the the horned creatures that he walks past and, and confronts to a certain extent in the beginning whenever he's entering the town are uh, statues and made of stone and made to stand the test of time because the town itself was had some roots in witchcraft given that one of the matriarchs of the town was a practicing witch mm, so the witchery runs deep and it wasn't until the the dark witch came in that you see that imagery decay mm, yeah. and that that uh the, the connections in the town being underpinned by uh, witchery and, and connection with nature as well. Katrina's remark about everybody in the town being connected by blood or marriage, mm-hmm. that her mother's witchcraft is so similar to Ichabod's mother's kind of made me feel like the roots that connect everything together spread a lot further than just this town that this is about this uh this natural system that connects literally everybody together yeah yeah it's really i love that so much just mm-hmm. positive witch energy in a movie is mm-hmm. yeah very nice also uh how kind of useless brom is he's the he's your big strapping guy the action dude played by johnny from uh starship troopers and his method first off is to uh bully uh ichabod who he immediately as soon as ichabod turns up and gets a, a an inadvertent kiss on the cheek from um katrina in a game he's immediately threatened he's like oh you're trying to take my girlfriend away so he, he, he plays the headless horseman trick on him then his uh, plan is to run up to the headless horseman and poke him and the horseman just cuts him in half taking him completely out of the picture he's gassed on but if you look at the 1949 uh, disney version of this he's really gassed on like the people who made beauty and the beast went back to their version of Sleepy Hollow, and they kind of modelled various elements of the town in Beauty and the Beast on hmm. that forgotten like bit of a film that was just coming out just to, when they were just trying to make little cheap things just to keep themselves alive within months of Cinderella coming out. And I really like that too because it does call forward a little bit or maybe back in this case to our conversation about Crimson Peak Mm -hmm. because in that one, the strapping young man who should be the hero is basically stabbed and has to be saved by the heroine. Mm -hmm. And that is a subversion of the gothic tropes because there's usually that masculine character that like confronts the the evil and all that. And it's funny because Del Toro did it as an – an intentional subversion of it to create this new gothic uh, language for, yeah. for the genre. Well, I think Tim Burton did it because it was just fun. Like it, it didn't <laughs> feel like 
it didn't feel like there was a greater textual reason for it other than this is a good way to get Brom out of the story because I don't want him in it. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's boring. I would like to give one little shout out to young Masbeth, who's not really prominently featured in the film, though he is kind of a passenger the whole way through. His father gets killed early on, so he becomes Ichabod's man, effectively. It seems like he's just there for Ichabod to talk to someone, which, interestingly, is something that happens in the Dumbo film. There's a brother there so that the sister can vocalize her feelings, but he doesn't really do anything. Either way, Masbeth is yet another example of a positive supporting male. The film was written by Andrew Kevin Walker, who wrote Seven, though the script ended up getting a serious rewrite from Tom Stoppard. And originally it was supposed to be, and this is a direct quote, a pretentious slasher with a spectacular murder every five minutes or so. It was developed from 1993 with a makeup effects designer called Kevin Yeager, who was originally going to direct, but then the studio got cold feet and brought in Tim Burton and made it a much more highbrow thing. Because remember at the time, it was the 90s, horror was not huge. Kevin Yeager was demoted to makeup, so at least he got to stay on the project. Tim Burton was just finishing off not filming Superman Lives. He wanted Johnny Depp for Ichabod, and the studio said Brad Pitt, Liam Neeson, or Daniel Day-Lewis. I kind of would have liked to see Lewis do it. The Crucible. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! Also, Johnny Depp, being crazy, wanted to parallel Irving's description of the character in the short story, which included a long prosthetic snipe nose, huge ears, and elongated fingers. Paramount turned down his suggestions. But they went out of their way to make him more like a Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing or Vincent Price in like a Hammer horror film. And apparently he took inspiration from Angela Lansbury's performance in Death on the Nile. It's possible that he turned a corner when he was allowed to stand firm on the Keith Richards version of Jack Sparrow. And studios stopped saying, no, you can't do that. So when he said, I want to do the Mad Hatter like Braveheart. Or I want to do... Willy Wonka like Michael Jackson they went alright the Leavesden set in England had only just been vacated by the Phantom Menace and Ian McDermott basically just stayed where he was He compared the aesthetics of the two films, stating that physical sets help the actors get into a natural frame of mind. That's what I always say. Sets and on location. Not green screen rooms and tennis balls on a stick. Making it be as real as possible for your actors than they let us, the audience, believe. Having come from the blue screen world of Star Wars, it was wonderful to see gigantic, beautifully made perspective sets and wonderful clothes, and also people recreating a world. It's like the way movies used to be done. Ian, I've got some bad news about episodes two and three. And the last thing about Mary Von Tassel I want to mention before we move on, she's a literal evil stepmother and she gets the monologue. Very fable myth kind Mm. of Mm. motif. Yeah, very much so, yeah. 
I love Miranda Richardson in this when she fight like there's an hour where she's just like in the background not being allowed to say anything and then when she comes to the foreground she suddenly eats up the screen mm-hmm. and Johnny Depp has to work hard to uh, to not let her basically eat the rest of the film and she's up <laughs> against the headless horseman and she's still center stage that dress she wears at the end which is kind of like this black spider web lattice over an existing dress it's this like she's the black widow then I love it so much. I want that dress. It is awesome. Yeah. Very awesome. That one and the purple one. Yes. Yes. I really like the fact that they didn't end on this one saying the original myths are bad, magic is bad, science is good, or science is bad, myths are good. It was they feed into each other and you have to live with the world to be part of it. I just really thought that was great. Big witch energy, good witch representation. We <laughs> don't get that enough. We do not. So good. And this is 20 years ago. We need more. Agreed. Before you folks start up, yes, we've heard of the TV show. No, we aren't going to watch it. We don't have time for TV. I also found out during my research about Shelley Duvall's Tall Tales and Legends from 1985, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow episode starring Ed Bagley Jr. as Ichabod Crane. That series also featured Jamie Lee Curtis as Annie Oakley, I kid you not. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. And a big thank you to our $15 patrons who get sponsorship credit every episode. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Kevin Vahey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joga Seeger, Greg Downing, Tim Wazinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And if you're thirsty for another Halloween story, let them go is set on the 31st of October, 1872. Rafe? Amanda asked her husband as they rattled around the hairpin bends of the Bristol streets. Do you know where this house we're going to got its name? I imagine the wood it's in is full of ravens. You're close. The house is located off a track through the woods that leads up to a crossroads. And do you recall what used to be placed at crossroads? A gibbet? The kind they used to hang the bodies of executed criminals in. Yes. I wonder at your macabre imagination. Shush, this is history. Amanda patted her hand. Much of the time, indeed, these were executed men. Hanged by the neck until they be dead and all that. But I read up on this particular crossroads, and it was one of the kind that they put you in a gibbet alive. Oh. Rebecca shuddered. And travellers could see highwaymen held to terrible example thus deterring future crime. And it worked, because now there's no such thing as crime. Well, highwaymen are in shorter supply now. Certainly the dandy kind could do with a comeback. So does this mean the ravens were actually crows? Most definitely. Hence the change of name in 1814 from Crowswood. What are you getting to with all of this? There's always something with you. What I'm getting to is that today being Samhain, this evening is said to be the night when the curtain between the worlds of the living and the dead is drawn back and the spirits walk the earth. 
And it just seems like being in the middle of a forest where so many men met their violent and agonizing ends would be a bit... Terrifying? Horrifying? I was going to say exciting. So we must remember to leave some food up for the dead, that they will pass us by. A survival horror and a gothic romance. Let Them Go might be my best, tightest story. It is available right now on Bandcamp for $7. Now, once again, I don't know how much of this was fully intentional from director Tim Burton or writer Andrew Kevin Walker, but they have expanded greatly upon Washington Irving's slender few pages, which painted a brief, shadowy tale of a frightened, gangly man in the grip of superstitious fear who is either spirited away by a phantom or conned into fleeing the town by a deceptive bully. 1999 Sleepy Hollow revisits and explores that shadowy world of ignorance and secrecy, adding cruelty and manipulative greed along with the legacy of hurt that that sows. It is a place of sins buried nowhere near deep enough, of avarice and black magic and violence and isolation. Our heroes are not tough or powerful. They want to minimise hysteria. They want to let the truth be told and justice be done. Their magic is gentle and protective. Their intentions are forthright and their reliance is upon both science and the intuition of the actions of other people. Ultimately, they succeed in exposing a conspiracy based on bitterness and malice. And there's something additionally triumphant about their return to New York City, itself a very mixed bag of corruption and scheming business plots, but also the melting pot of civilization's expanding worldview, where people flock to struggle towards a brighter future, often escaping from their own sleepy hollow to get there. I'm all behind the idea that the Statue of Liberty, very much twinned with New York, is a better symbol for the best that America can be than even the Stars and Stripes. It's not a brilliant film, but it sets the right sides in opposition. And the elegant but acerbic pen strokes and passion for bringing history to life of Tom Stoppard, who wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, Shakespeare in love, and Brazil can be felt in the rewrite. This is Hamilton's New York, after all. It is set less than two decades after the Declaration of Independence, and it is absolutely key to remember that this is a story about a bunch of old white people on stolen land, all playing at cutthroat chicanery in order to steal it again from each other. It is up to those who aren't greedy for land or for power to drag that filthy behaviour screaming into the light. Thank you, Lauren, for coming on the show again. Always happy to be here and add a little something. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Out.